Welcome to Sunburnt Country Music, interviews with Australian country music artists. My name is Sophie and I have been interviewing Australian country music artists for over a decade and I still love it. I love their stories, I love their insights and I love their music. So I hope you enjoy hearing from them on this podcast. Travis Collins has released seven studio albums and one acoustic album of his last record, Wreck Me. He has had number one albums and won eight golden guitars and is one of the most dynamic live performers you will ever see. And I can attest to this because I've seen him play live. He now has a new album, Any Less, Any More, which has debuted at number three on the ARIA album charts, number two in Australian artist charts and number one on the country charts. Congratulations, Travis. Thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you um, and this album I've been listening to on repeat and from the sound of it, the sound of what's on the album, Life is Good. This is a really life-affirming collection of songs. I think it is. That's a, that's a really good way to put it. Is It's life-affirming and um, these songs were were born in a time of, of pandemic and, and uh, catastrophe and you do a lot of soul-searching in that time. I mean, there's really... You, you look too far out externally at what's going on in the world and it's just absolute chaos and depression. And uh, so I, I spent that time trying to be productive within myself and, mm-hmm. and did a lot of growth, um, you know, a lot of learning about myself, about my resilience and, um, you know, how much of it did I have, how much of it didn't I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of focused on the things that were in my control, that were in, in um, the realm of possibility. And that was, you know, figuring out uh, better ways to, to be in my marriage, better ways to be in, in my family as brother and son and um, be, better ways to be in my community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of these songs came from that kind of headspace without really having to try. It was more that there was a shift in life and the music followed. Mm. And it's, I mean, that sounds like it's a, it was a conscious decision of yours when faced with a set of circumstances that, you know, no work, you're a touring musician, you play live a lot, that wasn't happening. You could have just, the, you know, the path of least resistance would have been to to not resist, I guess, um, and, and just to sit there and let things happen for good or bad. But it sounds like instead you did all those things, but it came from a place of actually saying, no, I am not, I am not going to just lie here and be, feel sorry for myself. Well, I, I kind of got the sense early on that that Pandora was not going back in the box yeah. anytime as as soon as my optimistic friends thought it might. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to seem like the pessimist in that, but I had music industry friends saying, you know, in March 2020, they were saying, you know, three months, this will all be gone. And I, I just I just was thinking this is two years from from the outset. I'm thinking there's no way this is gone in a few months. And and being that I draw a living from large events, um, mm-hmm. people, um, you know, de- dense, dense rooms um, with lots of people or, you know, large crowd environments, I thought we're going to be the first ones off and the last ones back. And that's, that's what happened. And, um, you know, I sort of did freak out for a couple of months and just really, uh, you know, hair turned gray and stressed and all that kind of stuff. But after two months of that, I'm just, I think if there's, if the, if you can't change a situation, don't sit around and whinge about it, just move on. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of what I tried to do is just focus on what, what was within the realm of, of being able to be possible. Um, you know, and, and I really just looked a lot closer to home and looked into my relationships and, and tried to do a lot of self growth, did a lot of reading, uh, mm-hmm. did a lot of, 
um, you know, reaching out to people and, and communicating with people that I hadn't been in touch with in a long time. And, uh, you know, I really fell in love with, with playing my instruments again. Like you see all these guitars here, they would hardly ever get played. Like two years ago, they probably wouldn't have even been sitting there. They'd have been in their cases collecting dust over there. And um, pandemic really got me to fall in love with playing guitar again. And it was such a, um, you know, therapeutic thing for me um, to the point that when we made the record any less anymore, for the first time, um, well, I guess more than any other record, considerably more than any other record, I played so much more guitar on this record. Okay. Um, usually I just do the odds and ends that we forgot to get somebody else to do or ran out of time to get a session guy. So I just, you know, try to make something up. But this time we went in with a, you know, conscious effort that I was going to try and play as much of the guitars as possible. I was going to try and do a lot of the backing vocals myself. So really gave myself um, kind of permission to feel confident in my abilities. And um, that came from just a, a year and a half of sitting around and just reconnecting with, with my music, figuring out what it was again. That's so, so surprising me about guitar in particular, because my image of you always as a live artist is as a really great guitarist as well. So I'm surprised that in the studio you're doing, you were doing the odds and ends usually. Yeah. I've just always struggled with confidence as a guitar player. And I know that, I know that a lot of people flatter me and say that, you know, we see you live and it looks like you love it. And I, my answer to that is live and, and in the studio are completely different environments. And I'm so happy to pick up a guitar and, you know, uh, stomp on the overdrive pedal and just give it what it's, what it's worth. Um, in that environment, it happens and then it's gone and mm -hmm. nobody ever really puts it under a microscope. But when you're in the studio, it's the most sterile environment and you can hear every tiny little imperfection in your sound, your pitch, your bends, your, uh, your attack, just your hands in general. Uh, I've never had confidence as a guitar player in the studio and until this album where, um, you know, it really sort of did a lot for my, my, um, my self-esteem as well. And I'm not by any means saying I'm a great guitar player all of a sudden. I don't think um, any of us, you know, have a shift like that. Um, but what it's done to me is made me realize that um, I probably should give myself a, a little more credit and, and play more guitar uh, in, in environments that aren't just, you know, on the stage to, you know, really loud atmospheres. So I'm imagining you write songs on guitar. So for you to go into the studio and then not have the instrument you wrote it on, be part of the recording for it, maybe it feels a little odd. I don't know. It's really funny because I'll go into the studio, um, whether it's, just as an artist or in a producer environment uh, and I have a guitar and I'll, I'll be constantly showing the the players or the band members, the idea, and I'll be playing it to them in the control room going, Oh no, this is what I want to hear. And I want to hear it go, ja, 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 or I want to hear it. I'll, I'll, I'll verbalize those things or I'll play them. Right. And then I just get someone that's better at executing it than me to do it <laughs> in this, in the recording session. Um, but I've always been like this close to, to, you know, recording it myself. My instruments are always there in the studio. I just didn't have the self-esteem to be the guy that goes red lights on, I'm going to play it. Um, but yeah, this, this album really sort of gave me the, the, uh, the confidence to try that more often. And your producer for this album was Stuart Stewart. And uh, I believe you have worked with him before. So, um, he, well, at least on our backyard, I think with Amber Lawrence, I'm not sure about the producer credits for that, the other albums, but um, he must've been pleased that she wanted to play guitar too. Yeah. In fact, he was the one, uh, I, I hadn't worked with Stuart uh, at all in the past. Amber Lawrence had, 
mm-hmm. uh, but I hadn't. And um, I thought what I really wanted to do with this was um, go in with, with my newfound sort of uh, confidence on, on what I could do more as a musician and a singer songwriter, but really get my head out of the production side of things um, and, and not let that sort of cloud my mind up too much. And it was, it was really Stuart who continually uh, pushed me to, to keep persevering with, with guitar playing and, um, you know, trying out different vocal things where I would have, and I did 100%. Many days on this record, I put my guitar down and, and, you know, yell some expletive through the microphone, Stuart, I'm just effing this and blah, blah, blah. And he'll be like, no, let's just have a coffee break and we'll come back and we'll try again. And then, you know, you come back and, and something completely different would happen. And suddenly you go, oh, well, maybe we are pretty close to the mark here. And, um, you know, so I do have to give massive credit to Stuart there. He was um, he was definitely the, uh, the, the the Trojan horse as far as, you know, making me push through that gate and letting everything unpack. Um, I was not giving myself a chance to get through the gate. No. I think what you've just described t- ties in actually with the theme of the title track. So, which is, you know, it's any less anymore. It's about not accepting any less anymore. And it sounds like you've not accepted any less of yourself as a musician anymore. Yeah, and that's kind of the shift of what this this um, I mean this like I said this album is the shadow of of my life and and my life was like a realization of going you know what I I, I want to live to the most of my potential and that's not just a career thing for me um, in fact career has always been and I've um, I don't mean to sound you know less driven or anything like that but career has always been the smaller part of my life. Mm-hmm. my my family and you know who I am as a person um, has always been the main focus and if I can have a career that's good enough to give me a good life I always want a good life to come first I don't want to have a life that is um, you know small and and slaved to ma- making an amazing career I'd rather have a great life and a, and a smaller career um, mm-hmm. if, if that makes any sense and that's kind of the shift that happened here and um, a lot of that was becoming a father in the mm-hmm. in the pandemic period as well. So that really t- took the blinders off and uh, made me made me realize uh, something I always suspected was that you know the life doesn't happen to you; it just happens. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot in that wording that I never realized before. It's you know before you have a kid, you're like, oh, why does this happen to me? And it's yeah. always blame this, blame that. And then you get a little bit of distance on it and a bit of perspective, and you're like. It's just happening. Don't have such an ego that you think it's out to get you. Don't don't be that arrogant. <laughs> I, I am not the most important person in my own life. And I, I actually relish in that now. And it's okay. something that um, was a big shift around um, these songs and that time. And I think you have uh, pandemic and then becoming a father. And those two things mesh together and absolute bandwidth of your experience just explodes to a whole new level. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you have a song about becoming a father on the album. It's called Raise Me. It is a lovely song. Um, at which point in your daughter's life did you decide to document the experience of fatherhood? Before. It was actually um, like a month before she was due. And uh, that song came from insecurities and, um, you know, doubt of uh, despite excitement, despite knowing that this is something that I'd always wanted. My wife and I, we were, we were trying for a couple of years and it just never really happened. We were, we were booked in for our first IVF after a, a couple of unsuccessful years trying. And there you go, like a week before our IVF appointment, 
we found out we were pregnant. And um, from that moment, uh, there's, a, there's an old expression that a woman becomes a mother the second she falls pregnant. She, you know, there's that physical connection mm. from day one, um, whereas as a man has to wait until he holds a child to be the father. Um, now, that's not the case for everyone. I, I don't intend to speak for everyone there, but it was, it was the case for me. Um, I found myself at the eight-month mark worried that I hadn't found a connection or an emotional availability to it. And mm -hmm. I, I was starting to, I was really starting to get in my own head thinking, you know, is this, is this the kind of dad you're going to be? Like, why, why are you not invested in, why do you not feel anything? And then um, one night I was just prepping some things in the house and getting ready for her and hanging clothes in the wardrobe. And um, like a ton of bricks, it just hit me and it, this um, all the emotions everything at once and um you know even even now like just recalling it it's quite an emotional experience and um yeah just setting her room up and her cot and, and putting a little boots in the cupboard and i just stood back and i went holy shit she's she's close she's going to be here real soon yeah. and from that from that overwhelming feeling um i started just to write down some thoughts which was um a leather and it was it was supposed to well I, at this point i never thought it was going to be a song and I, I never had any intentions for anything but a letter to write down how how i wasn't sure you know i was just writing down some affirmations just saying hey i got no idea what i'm doing i got no idea what kind of dad i'm going to be i don't know what kind of kid you're going to be uh, but i'll promise you that as long as i am top side of this planet i will always be trying my best and mm -hmm. that's what the song it was about and it wasn't till um you know, i was talking to a songwriter friend of mine um that that i've written with a lot and he said man we should turn that into a song and um, we started talking a little more about it and um the idea of how you, you still got a lot of growing up to do when when you have a kid and it's the it's the arrival of the child that makes you grow up and mm -hmm. and then we started to sort of play on on you know relative words and, and how often while we're raising them, they, they do a lot of raising us. And um, <laughs> we kind of just messed around with it until we landed on, on that combination of words. And uh, he's a dad. I was a, I was a first time dad. And um, yeah, when, when raise me was um, finished, we both just sat back and, and knew we had something really special. And uh, I, I think for me, knowing where it came from um, and the vulnerable place that I was in, mm. it, it's, it's like that's why I write songs is is to get things like that out, and then now we have you know dads coming up and mums too because it's you know it's not just not just dads but um, particularly dads come up to me after shows and like they can't even talk they just no. shake my hand and they you know their their face is quivering and they're like that song you know and they'll have their twenty five year old daughter there with him and they'll be like that was that was us and I and it's just it just warms my heart that something that i went through found its place and other people found their place in it and it brought us all together because somebody said it finally somebody said it what we were yeah. all feeling and also you know for you to know that the risk you took in being vulnerable was caught but it was yeah it was held by the audience you know that that turned out to be not such a risk in the end because they were there for you yeah i i think with those kind of things I, as a creative, as a songwriter, but more so as any creative, whether it's, you know, 
songwriter, a producer, or a musician, or a, or a painter, um, mm-hmm. an artist. We all we all have a responsibility to share the the things that that scare us the most. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's a great um, was it Elvis Presley line that just absolutely rocked me when I first heard it. And if, if something's too scary to say, you should sing it. And I thought, wow, that's you know, if it's too scary to say, then say it louder. And I, I, I really felt that. And I think that's where great art comes from. And evidently, um, in the case of Raise Me, it's certainly been the case. Yeah. I'm also wondering if it applies that sentiment about singing it instead of saying it applies to bottle up, um, because that's a song about bottling up emotions and, yeah. you know, the figurative language of bottle up, but then the literal language of, you know, you're repressing these emotions, so you've got to turn a bottle up to deal with them. And I'm wondering if that if that applies to you as a musician in that instead of having to turn the bottle up, you've actually turned to music to express what you want to express. Turned to both in, in the past, you know, I'm not too proud to say I'm, I'm an open book completely. Um, you know, there's been a lot of times in, in my adult life where you just don't quite know how to, um, how to, how to say something or how to get it across the right way. Or, uh, you know, you, you really wish, there were easier ways to discuss things like how do you how what's the perfect time to bring up something that's going to change so much so finding ways to articulate can be can be challenging for for blokes and um i i just thought you know not not that i'm trying to promote absolutely getting railed to to hide from emotions but uh the reality is that sometimes that's what we do. Um, and whether people like to face that or not culturally, that's, that's what we do. When, when the girls get together and have some wine, they, they talk about the problems that are going on. When guys get together and have some beers, that's, that's when the conversations happen that don't just happen, you know, picking up the loaf of bread at the grocery, you know, there's, there's something about that social setting where you're sitting around with your friends and everybody's having a couple of drinks and they say, Mm -hmm. what's been going on? And you say, well, actually here it is and and so that's kind of what bottle up's about and um i've actually been really really proud of the response that we've been getting from this because i worried i worried that that flip and and Mm -hmm. double entendre sort of thing was was a little too clever i wasn't sure if people were going to access that or not um but yeah it's 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 a song about you know if that's what it takes if it if it takes getting through um you know a few drinks to be able to access how you feel and and communicate how you feel then then do it let's let's rip the top off of a couple of drinks yeah right um and i think it's also a song about yeah a song that gives people permission to talk about that as raise me gives people permission to talk about being first-time parents so it seems to me on this album that yes in acknowledging your own experiences you have very much open the door to other people to acknowledge their own, which is part of the role of the artist, I think. Yeah, I really do think it is. And, um, you know, it's um, it's something that, like I said, I, I know that there are people out there that'll hear that song and go, oh, that's great. That's that's the real, that's really the answer for unloading your problems is to is to drink. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that's the answer for everybody. Some, some people don't know when to stop. And some of us can have a drink and um, sadly a few of us, the drink has us. Um, but uh, I really think... Uh, for me, in the past, that's that's been a, a great coping mechanism, especially like I've got friends that I know that will not talk to, to me about any serious matter that if I suspect something's going on right. in their life that they could they could use some help with. They won't talk to a 
They won't talk to you. They won't ask for it. But you sit around a campfire and, you know, you have three or four beers and suddenly it's the elixir that loosens everybody up and, and they're more willing to, to discuss things and, and, and accept some help or, uh, you know, swallow their pride a little bit. So, um, you mm-hmm. know, my experience is it's as long as it's under control, it's all good. Now, another track on this album is a collaboration with the Wolf Brothers called Run in the Country. Um, it, that was a genius idea when I saw you all put together. I was like, has this tour happened already? <laughs> I don't know yeah. about it. And how did the collaboration on the song come about? Well, it's kind of, you, to tell that story, you've got to go back a fair way. Um, <laughs> Wolf Brothers and I have been good friends for uh, probably a lot longer than people realise, yeah. well before either of us had a record deal or um songs out or any fans or touring i met the wolfies at at their very first mainland australia gig it was in regional victoria it was it was a bns um called the elmore summer send-off and um that was the night we met and it's got to be god it must be 12 13 13 years ago now maybe more um and um we just hit it off and we, we we stayed in touch as their star started to rise and I started to make some headway over here and we've always got together and um, written songs. Uh, some of the songs have ended up on their records, some have ended up on my records, um, but we always joked and toyed with the idea um, that someday we, we would write something and instantly know that we right. had to record it as a collaboration. Now, this is where it gets interesting because this particular song has come out in a climate where um, Australian government is a shambles and people think that we're actually seriously releasing a political song. And that was never the intention. So we just wanted to, we got we wrote, we wrote this song like a year and a half ago. Right. So we're talking, then all we wanted to write was a song that was a bit tongue in cheek and fun. And it was prompted by, um, Scotty Morrison disappearing to Hawaii when the bushfires were on. That's what started the song. Right. Um, and what we said was, you know what, you know what Parliament House needs is, is just a few more bushies and farmers just in there to sort stuff out. Day one, we would solve so many complex issues just by having logical people that aren't afraid to say it like it is and just sort the shit from the clay. Mm-hmm. was was where we were going with it. So it was just a tongue-in-cheek, funny song about putting some hillbillies in government. And then <laughs> we went on and recorded it, all good, we'd love it, get ready, put it out to release. And then the week before we put this song out, government implodes and people are calling each other and suing each other and there's inquiries going on. And when this song comes out and people are like, oh, that's a political song. It's just like, well, it's not. It's a political <laughs> time, but it's not yeah. a political song. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just a funny, funny song. And we we are now sitting back just laughing at the commentary on this one because um, it's just a tongue-in-cheek. It's just a few mates just having a joke. I took it as a tongue-in-cheek song, but it is interesting to find out that other people did not. And if you ever decide to run for office, there's Absolutely. your campaign song. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I wouldn't pass the breath test, I don't think. Now, I did read um, that you wrote a song uh, on the album with Lindsay L, but I don't know which one, and I'm a big fan of Lindsay L's work. So yeah, the song's called Getting Old, um, and it, it's a funny song. It's just kind of my wife and I joke about it all the time, um, you know, 
one of us will forget something. Just all those little signs that you you haven't <laughs> got as much of a grasp on keeping your shit together like you used to. So we're 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 tired a lot these days. We're run down. We're <laughs> overworked and. Now and then we'll forget something. And we have this joke in my house, uh, you're slipping, I'm gonna have to trade you in for a younger model. Nice. So we say that to each other a lot, which I know 100% is a bad idea for me because I would get a massive downgrade. Um, she'd get an upgrade, but I would not. Um, and then I just said, I said one day, these words rolled off my tongue. I said, getting old with you will never get old with me. And yeah. I thought, oh, quick, I had to go and you know, grab a, I did this straight away. I went and got the notepad and the pen. And it was like, all right, I've got to write that down. And then fast forward, you know, a month or so later, I was on a Zoom call, um, songwrite with Lindsay. And she said, all right, let's just go through our titles and uh, threw a few titles at the wall and a few ideas. And then I got to that one. She goes, oh, wait, go back. What was that one? And I just basically told her the story I just told you. And we just started, you know, being both guitar heads. We just started jamming out on this, this riff. And then I reckon 35 minutes later, we had the song. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a great line. Um, so I'm pleased to know you're the one who came up with it. Uh, and oh, <laughs> in listening to the acoustic version of Wreck Me, I was, uh, you know, it's, it's a contemplative album, much more than this one is, because uh, as I said, this one is a life affirming album and Wreck Me had a different tone to it. Um, I'm wondering if you found out new things about those songs when you were recording them acoustically, or indeed, do you find out things about all of your songs if you play them acoustically? The Wreck Me um, duality uh, the, the electric album and the acoustic album was something that uh, I, I've got to say it wasn't my idea. It came from fans. Um, yeah. dur- during that time we released that, there was there was no touring. You couldn't go out and play with your band. So the only way I had to promote that album was to sit here with my laptop and do Friday night live streams and I'd just pick a different guitar and we'd sit here and, and sing songs. And that album came out and... Um, I just kept seeing this recurring comment and the, and each time it did it more and more people will liked it so it went to the top of the thread and that was you should record these songs in this mode and i thought it was really silly at first because I, I thought they were talking about like me literally sitting in front of my my zoom uh, but no, i said no you should you should record an acoustic album mm-hmm. uh, and then i really thought about it i thought well i probably It'd be a fun exercise to re-record the album that you've just done, but do it acoustic. So we replaced all the drums with shakers and tambourines and basically anything that wasn't electric or digital. um, You know, some of it was just like stomping on a guitar case and, Mm -hmm. you know, and just banging on random things. Um, We replaced so many electric guitars with uh, more acoustic guitars, mandolins and banjos and things like that um so for the first time maybe the only time in my career we had uh wreck me the original album and then it might have only been six months later or something eight months we did a complete um cover to cover of the same record with more of a sepia tone on the artwork and it was Mm -hmm. with all the electronic instruments and drums removed everything was acoustic um and i gotta say something happened and um, I, I feel like people responded more to that acoustic record than they did the electric one. Um, I mean, chart-wise, it, it wasn't it wasn't something that we put out and you know did sales and charts of. It was um, it was a digital release only. Um, but um, yeah, really, really found a mark that I hadn't thought of before. So, 
kudos to those fans for uh, bringing that idea up. Right. Now, um, as you said, that came out of a time of not being able to tour an album, but you have been back on the road um, and it seems to have been going well, although I did see something on your social media that suggested you've been finding the landscape monotonous out the window of the touring bus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, it's funny. We we joke in the band sometimes that we're, we're paid for the 90 minutes that we play on stage because the rest of the day is a pain in the ass. Right. Um, you know, it's you, you get up and like for me in the Hunter Valley, like if, if there's a flight, um, you know, it's usually out of Sydney. So I've got to, I've got to be up and, and out of this house at least three and a half hours before my flight to get to Sydney to check in. And then there's the flight and then there's waiting for all the bags. And then there's usually a two hour drive or something on the other end because we play in regional areas. Mm-hmm. So what a lot of people don't see is by lunchtime on a show day, we've usually, we've usually done probably seven hours of traveling. And then there's sound check and then there's trying to find good food or a decent coffee or something like that. Um, if you're lucky enough to do a meet and greet, you get to you get a bit of excitement of, of meeting some people before a show. And then bang, you're on the, the show starts. And for 90 minutes, you're actually doing what it is that got you into this career in the first place. Yeah. And then just as quickly as it turned on, you do the encore you go backstage, you tap each other on the back and have a beer. And next thing you know, you stick your head out the curtain and the room's empty. Yeah. And then within the space of half an hour, you go from a room um, absolutely screaming and, and, and noise and love and validation to, an, to a dark hotel room just, just waiting for the flight the next morning. And it's, it's a really, really crazy juxtaposition of worlds mm-hmm. because um it's it's so isolating at times like despite that 90 minutes where you're with everybody that came to see you um you spend the rest of the day just trying to keep up with home on the phone call and you know doing video calls with your daughter and 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 trying to be present but um yeah it sometimes it can be a lot to get through but um yeah we we recently posted just some some piss take videos of um <laughs> Western Australian landscapes. We were out on tour and it was a six hour drive up oh. the coast. And it was just like, Oh, look out that way. Nothing changed for six hours. Look out that way. Nothing changed for six hours. And it was just like sitting on a plane. Like in the time we drove from the airport to the gig, you could have flown to Tahiti. <laughs> that is one of the things that is wild about this country. But also you talking about that experience of, you know, after the show's over an empty room. I also think it must be really hard to manage the adrenaline levels of, of, you know, throughout a day like that, you're up early, you go to the airport, sound check, things are building show, nothing. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's, it's quite, I'm sure you're used to it, but yeah, it would be tricky to manage. I think it's, it is noticeable when you have like different personnel come into the crew or the tour, um, but I think over the years, I've, I've, man, some of my band members coming up 12 years, 10 years, um, so, some of, some are eight years, like we're, we're all like, we're all eight plus years together. Mm-hmm. Um, and some, some longer than that. So I think we've really identified when to hit the go button, when to just lay off, when to give each other space on our phones to check in with home or do some work. Um, we've, we've really figured out when to get in each other's face and when to stay out of each other's pocket. Um, and I think that really makes a, a big difference, that familiarity with the, with the personalities around you. Because um, we notice like if, the, if we have to get somebody come in, say my bass player, 
you know, has to go to a family wedding or something. We, we get a sub guy in for that weekend or whatever. And you just, you just feel the, the difference in, in personalities and everyone's, you know, trying to be chill and, and, and the new guy would be trying to amp everyone up. And it's just like, we know what we're doing. We're, yeah. We'll amp up before. when we yeah. have to. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it is, um, it is interesting. Yeah. Well, the go button will have to be pushed for the Gimpy Muster and the Denny Muster you have uh, coming up. I imagine you've played both of them many times before. Yeah. Um, Gimpy probably a lot more than Denny. Um, I've, but I have been lucky to play Denny, I feel like maybe six or seven times in my career now. And um, it's it's always it's always one where you want to turn up with a, a bigger go button each time. And um, <laughs> we're, we're really striving for that this year. Uh, even out on this tour at the moment where we're playing, you know, clubs, but we're, we're constantly trying to keep our headspace in larger events. And how is this show going to work when we get to Gympie? How's it going to work when we get to Denny? Mm -hmm. So we are playing um, the usual touring circuit that we've done, but we're doing it in a headspace of let's, let's get our ducks in a row. So when we get to these places next, we've got to, we got to lift the bar from, from where we've been. And I, I think that's what I've, that's where I'm enjoying the touring at the moment is, is really trying to learn new things and, and how can we, how can we, uh, you know, give, give the crowd more of ourselves when we don't know how to do that yet? Like, how can we unlock the next level? And then how can we give them a better experience than, than we feel like we have in the past? And so you're constantly trying to come up with new things. And um, I feel like we got some, some great, some great, uh, well, we'd call them tricks. We've got some great tricks up our sleeve for uh, for the next few large stage events we're at. And I think that what you've also described speaks to the technical difficulty of pulling off a great festival show. It's not just, hey, show up, plug in, maybe do some rehearsal, whatever. It's actually that mindfulness several months out is what you're talking about, is actually working towards that, thinking about how you can tweak the show so that when you arrive, because the festival sets probably only an hour, not the 90 minutes you're used mm -hmm. to with the club show, it's yeah. actually making the most of it for the audience. And I think that that comes, well, I'm sure as a musician and a performer, you want to be the best you can be, but it also speaks to me of wanting to do the best for the audience, making sure that you're really delivering for them. Totally. That's a hundred percent what I, what, where I'm at with my thoughts now. And um, just thinking about the, the moments that they're going to take away, you know, when, when I, you know, I, I like to think of the fan the next day, talking to someone that wasn't at the show and like, Oh, we seen Travis Collins last night. And they're like, Oh, how was he? Oh, he did this thing. And what, what is that thing? What is that going to be? How do, how do we get that? And how do we make three of them um, within that 60 minutes? And that's, that's where we're at now. It's just like, you know, it's, it's great to go out there with all the energy and to jump around and play the songs and all that sort of stuff. And um, I don't think we can be more energetic than we've been in the past. It's, it's now figuring out how do we maintain that level of energy, that level of output and that level of connection but also use the scale, use mm -hmm. the scale of where we're at. So how do we use all this junk hanging from the roof, the screens, the spotlights, the large crowd? How do we use the crowd to become part of the show and how do we control them so they become our go button? Yeah, right. Interesting. Yes, I, I love talking about work, so I could keep asking questions about that. But I've had you talking for a while and I'm going to end on a non-music question, yeah. which is that I read recently that you joined New South Wales Fire and Rescue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
It's uh, not something I talk about a lot. It's, but I, I did get outed on TV a couple of weeks ago. They had photos of me um, in, in my, uh, my station gear. But uh, it, it's another thing that, that ha- it's something I've always wanted to do. Um, when, I was, when I was a kid, I think I was torn between the two coolest jobs in my mind were uh, to go on tour with a band or be a fireman. And I thought, I don't know why, but so much of my life, I thought you, you couldn't do both. You had to do one or the other. And then along came pandemic. And again, it comes back to that first question. What can, what can I do now? What am I in control of? And I thought, okay, well, you can be more present in your community. How can you be more present in your community? Maybe it's time to look at the firefighter thing. And uh, made a few inquiries and absolutely blown away to find out that the station just uh, two minutes from my house had a massive shortage of firefighters and so yeah I went and did the training up at Armadale two rounds of training um, yeah got my tickets and uh, haven't looked back even though we're back at touring at full scale now it's um it's a great bit of my life that I love because it's um you know it keeps me in a team environment and if I'm completely honest and I, I often don't like to talk about this because people misconstrue it. Uh, when I'm on tour, um, and, and I, I'm, I, I try to be well aware that while it's my name on the wall and the lights and the noise and everyone's there to see me do what I'm doing, um, there is, I suspect, an element that you never really get the true interaction with people person to person because they're a person, but they're treating me like a star. Um, right. And I don't mean to sound ungrateful, but I quite often I, I suspect I'm not having real human to human honest interactions when they're watching what they say to me and they're, you know, everybody's, you know, trying to, they're just fussing over me. Um, And I find that in the fire and rescue team environment, I'm a number. And there's, there's, there's a part of that that really appeals to my psych that it, you know, I'm, I'm a service number and it's a valuable team, but nobody in the team is better than anyone else. Everybody respects a hierarchy and a ranking system. Um, so there's a part of that that really intertwines with my music career and makes me get the best of both worlds. Um, one really makes me appreciate the other, um, vice versa. You know, it's the stuff that I do with Fire and Rescue really makes me love my music career. And my music career stuff really makes me enjoy the larrikinisms and the, the fun and, and the challenges and the team obstacles and the things we have to do uh, on emergency call-outs. So they're both, they're both integral things that, that connect. And um, I know they don't seem like likely pairing, but uh, for me, in my world of where I'm at, I'd, I'm, I'm, ha- I'm so happy to do both. Well, fire and rescue is a dangerous job as well. So I'm going to say thank you for your service to your community because you help keep community safe. Thank you for your music and for your time. It was great to talk to you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Sunburnt Country Music Podcast. For more Australian country music interviews and reviews and other things, go to sunburntcountrymusic.com or to Sunburnt Country Music on Instagram, Facebook and TikTok.